0: The company is called Bosch Health today, the ticker is BHC. And I invested in this company in October of 2015 at $166 per share. And I sold my investment in March of 2017 at about $10 per share.
1: Hello fellow risk takers and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives, and that mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor community. In the community, you get access to our global asset allocation strategies and stock portfolios, our investment research, weekly live sessions, and risk reduction lessons I've learned from more than 500 guests. Go to MyWorstInvestmentEver.com right now to claim your exclusive podcast listeners lifetime discount. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Derek Conny-Joe. Derek, are you ready to join the mission? Yes, I am. So I want to introduce you to the audience and The first thing is I want to say that you and I met through a mutual friend of ours, Harry, and we met at a dinner and it was very interesting. I mean, you're a younger guy and I really felt like, man, this guy is on the right track when it comes to learning about investing and investing. And, you know, I just felt like you were a really sensible guy. And then I asked you to come on the show. So that's how we got here. And so, I'm really excited to have you on. And so let me introduce you to the audience. Derek is a student of business and currently works with his family in the textile business in Bangkok. He started his investment portfolio at age 20 while studying at the University College of London. He looks to differentiate himself through hard work, voracious reading, and continuous learning. His objective is to compound capital at decent rates of return without taking undue risk. You can learn more about him at his very, very appealing rbxinvestments.com website. Derek, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you bring to this world.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for the warm introduction. I'm really grateful to be on your show. So thank you for the opportunity. And I noticed that you've had so many amazing people on your show. I noticed that you've had Morgan Housel and Ted Zaidy on your show. So today I feel like I am walking among giants. So thank you for making that happen. And I think there's a lot of, I think there are many lifetimes worth of wisdom on your podcast. So I would recommend the audience to check out your show.
1: Yeah, and we appreciate that. And yeah, there are some amazing people. But it, I tell you, it's even more interesting to see someone like yourself coming up. You know, a lot of those guys have got a lot of things figured out, but you're in that process of figuring out discovery, you're sharing stuff that you're doing on your on your website, you're doing other stuff. Maybe just give us a little background on kind of your journey before we get into the story. Sure.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew. You're too kind. I'm just truly blessed. So just a little bit more about myself. So I, as you said, I work with my family in the textile business, and I also have my own investment portfolio, which I started when I was 20 and studying at university. And I'm really fortunate because I get to wear two hats at the same time, the hat of a businessman and the hat of an investor. And, you know, Mr. Buffett said that he's a better businessman because he's an investor and he's a better investor because he's also a businessman. So I think there are a lot of overlaps between the two disciplines. And I get to work with people I like and admire every single day. And you just can't ask for more than that.
1: Mm. You know, it's interesting. I came to Thailand in 1992. In 1993, I, I started as an analyst. And one of the biggest sectors in Thailand was the textile sector. Okay. And then China entered the space and it was, you know, it was like a barn fire. I mean, it ripped through the textile industry and so many textile companies had to find their niche, had to really come up with a, just not low cost anymore. But also many families had to decide, okay, do we continue with this or what do we do? So it's kind of, it's interesting about your situation having had, you know, a family business that's been successful, but then also thinking about, you know, how do you carry on family legacy and all that stuff? How does that work within your own family and kind of what you're doing relative to what your father or your mother or others in your family have been doing?
0: So my, my aim is to do, you know, is to try to improve the business every single day. And, you know, as a poet Rumi said, When you start to walk on the path, the path appears. So, you know, just trying, just trying to make the business a little bit better every single day. And hopefully if you do it over a period of many days, many months, many years, it compounds.
1: Mm. And one of the questions I've had, you know, in my own life, when I was a young analyst, we set up Coffee Works, our coffee roasting factory. And really, I didn't know anything about being an analyst and I didn't know anything about being a businessman because I never knew anything about that kind of stuff. And I had to learn on the fly, but you know, I felt like one of the things that I learned a lot about as an analyst was that many business owners are overly optimistic because I know my business partner is always focused on the positive, the growth, the opportunity, and oftentimes I wouldn't say downplays, but it's just a point that, you know, he's got to focus on the growth. So one of the lessons I learned from that was that as an analyst, be very skeptical about what people say what ceos say and investor relations people say about what they're going to do with their business what is let's say one thing that you've learned from the idea of you know kind of trying to wear two hats investor and owner operator type of thing what would you say is something that you've learned from that crossover
0: i've just learned that i think i really think that business is the ultimate sport because it's twenty-four by seven by three sixty-five and the whole world is trying to kick your butt. And that drives my and, and I'm a competitive guy, so so I like it. And you know, in high school I did track and I did football. So I, I just like competing. And it's not a lot of fun to be in the arena.
1: Yeah, isn't it? I remember my first boss in the industry when I became an analyst. I came down, the research was on the floor above, and his trading area was down below and he was kind of a, a one-man show in that he had all these great relationships around the world and people around him, like, and he's on the phones, you know, buy this, sell that, and all that. And okay. one day I walked down when I was young and I was, you know, just a new analyst and he was like, got orders coming in from all around the world and he's executing and all that. And then he turned and he looked at me and he said, it's the cutting edge of capitalism. was <laughs> oh. <laughs> ah. <laughs> an excellent way to put it. And I just love that the idea of the allocation of capital is the objective of the investor. But the objective of the business owner is the allocation of resources, which can be money, people, skills, all kinds of stuff. So I would say sometimes that job of the entrepreneur is, you know, let's say it's the cutting edge of capitalism. And yeah, it's just it's great. And I just had dinner last night with my best friend, Dale, and we talked about the business. He's been away for about a month in the US. So he just got back and, you know, being able to run a business now from, you know, another country is kind of amazing. But just looking at, you know, what are the challenges ahead? And, you know, what are the opportunities? It's such an invigorating thing. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one Goes into their worst investment thinking it will be. Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story.
0: Oh, Andrew, how much time do you have?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the floor is yours. Andrew, I think you're going to love this story.
0: And okay. I mentioned this to you when we met at dinner. So sort of um, mistakes. Mistakes are great because that's where the real learning happens. And I've been fortunate enough to make, to make a lot of mistakes. Well, <laughs> there's one particular mistake that taught me the most. And stung the most. So my worst investment was in the common stock of a company called Valiant Pharmaceuticals. The ticker was VRX. The company is still around today, but under a different name. The company is called Bosch Health Today. The ticker is BHC. And I invested in this company in October of 2015 at $166 per share. And I sold my investment. In March of 2017, at about $10 per share. (laughs) So that's a 94% loss on my capital. And so a little bit more about the company. This is a pharmaceutical company based in Laval, Quebec, Canada. The company at that time was run by this fellow called Mike Pearson, who was a former McKinsey consultant. And from 2008 to 2015, The stock had gone up by 45 times wall street and a lot of hedge fund managers were in love with mike pearson and and the valiant business model and i think my loss in this investment was not due to bad luck it was bad analysis and i'm quoting david einhorn here that's a david einhorn quote and so let me tell you more about the valiant business model so under mike pearson the company relied on gamesmanship and aggressive accounting to run up its value, and Pearson had this belief that spending money to develop new drugs was inefficient and wasteful. So this is what the company did: one, borrow money to acquire pharma companies; two, slash the R and D; three, jack up the prices of life-saving drugs to offset volume declines. And four, rinse and repeat. This was not a sustainable strategy. And as Herb Stein said, if something can't go on forever, it will eventually end. And if you recall, in late 2015, this was around the time where there was a lot of political backlash around drug pricing. You might also remember Martin Shkreli and Turing Pharmaceuticals. So they raised the price of one particular drug from $13.50 to $750 per pill. And, you know, I think that's deeply immoral. And once the world figured out what was wrong with the valiant business model, the stock collapsed and Pearson was fired.
1: And what, let me ask you, what did you see? I mean, obviously in hindsight, you can describe kind of what they were doing, but how did you, what was appealing to you at the time?
0: a lot of very smart people owned this business. They had some of the most respected hedge funds on a shareholder roster. They had Pershing Square, Ruan Caniff, and Value Act was on the board as well. So just an incredible set of investors. And honestly, Andrew, owning it made me feel smart because it was an incredibly complex business model. So I thought if they got it, I should also get it. And that's, that's really dangerous in this business. You have to be honest with yourself. And I strayed way outside of my circle of competence. I had no business investing in pharmaceuticals, and I still don't. The industry is incredibly complex.
1: Yeah, and one funny. other question about it is, like, this is going to sound like a dumb question, but, like, why didn't you sell when it was going down? <laughs> you
0: know, Andrew, I am part of the Slow Learners Club. <laughs> I will get there, and I had many chances to sell along the way, but I didn't. I think it was stubbornness, it was ego, it was hubris. And John Maynard Kane said, "When the facts change, you have to change your mind." And I my mind, in this case, a little too slowly. Yep, yeah,
1: yep. Yeah. So let's go through the lessons. How would you summarize the lessons that you've learned? Painful. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I think there's so many great lessons from this story because it happened to me so right when i was just starting my investment career investment career investment journey and i don't wish a 90% decline on anyone but having that happen to me so early on i think that was the blessing it taught me about circle of competence it taught me about the dangers of leverage it taught me about anchoring bias it taught me about overconfidence it taught me about position sizing so just so many great lessons but what I want to say is, I want to talk more about the dangers of leverage, actually, because because of Alien's acquisitive business model, the company had a ton of debt. In year-end 2015, it had $30 billion of net debt versus $2.2 billion in cash flow from operations that year. So you know, even if the company had no capex, it would have taken them 14 years to eliminate the debt. And I think a little margin of safety exists. In highly levered businesses. And I think if you want to invest in businesses that are run by people with equal measures of talent and integrity, then leverage, I think, can be a good guide on the integrity factor. Because if you think about it, if someone wants to steal some money and if they want to maximize the size of the hole, they will have to steal other people's money. And you almost never, find frauds at companies that have little to no debt on this balance sheet or that are 100% equity finance. So it's just very interesting from, from that perspective. And there's a great book about the dangers of leverage. The book is called When Genius Failed by Robert Lowenstein. and I'm sure you've read this book. And it's just a fascinating case study. You know, It's about the hedge fund long-term capital management, which blew up in 1998, and it was because they took on too much debt leverage you know, in their positions, in the merger-up positions. They just couldn't play out their hand. And also when a business has a lot of debt, I think the focus of the management sometimes shifts from managing the business to managing the balance sheet.
1: And just out of curiosity, what would you say is a lesson that you learned about how to sell?
0: I still haven't learned it, I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think
0: they are... There's something known as endowment bias and there is a good type of endowment bias and there's the bad kind of endowment bias. The bad kind of endowment bias is when you hold onto your losers for too long. And the good kind of endowment bias is when you let your winners run. So I think it's very important that, that you strike the right balance.
1: Maybe I'll share a few things. I've been taking some notes as you've been talking. And I think the first thing that I take away from it is, you know, following the crowd sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't and following the smart crowd sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't that's right and i think that one of the questions that you have to ask when you're following smart money is why do they own this and what percent of their total investment is this sometimes they're just messing around and they decide, okay, I'm going to buy a little bit of this. And now their name's on that, you know, (laughs) and then that can be misleading, right? Or someone could be friends with the guy or something like that. So I think one of the lessons is, and I'd say out of the six common mistakes that I've teased out of what everybody's told me over almost 600 interviews is that The biggest, number one, most common mistake is fail to do your research. So it's not enough that a smart, successful guy, man or woman, has said, you know, is is invested in something. That is not enough of a reason. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, I would say, you know, you talked about leverage, and I would just say that from my experience as an analyst, leverage is the number one risk that a company faces because basically, leverage takes away flexibility. Businesses are going to make mistakes. They're going to face hard times. They're going to face big challenges. They're going to have to reinvent themselves. But when leverage is high, your flexibility starts to fall apart. And it can fall apart very, very fast. In the case of the latest crisis, many companies that were under a lot of leverage basically lost the ability to control their businesses. And so, In my own business and in my experience in investing, I really try to, you know, prefer companies that have a minimum amount of leverage. Now, what is that? That's also an interesting one, because as a teacher of finance for all of my life, wait a minute, the weighted average cost of capital and the capital asset pricing model and all of these things tell us that there's an optimal point for leverage. But let's explore that for just a minute. That basically tells us that if you're all equity financed, your cost of funding is going to be high compared to if you could borrow money at a lower rate at a bank. So therefore, if you were to blend in a little bit of debt with your equity, you're going to reduce the cost of capital, the weighted average cost of capital. But I mean, how much debt could you get? You know, your bank's not going to lend you 50, 60, 70% of your capital as debt. So you're really talking about, let's just say 40% is probably maximum that you're going to get from the bank. Let's just say that for a moment. And if you borrowed 5% of your capital as debt, it's not really, it's inconsequential. So let's just say somewhere between 10 and 40% may be the optimal level. And then I would say that if someone's looking at that, I would say that probably it's better to be down at the lower end of that, maybe 20%, where you're getting a little bit of a kick from a low interest rate, but you're not pushing the limits. But The problem is with cash on your balance sheet, you have different options. You have options of paying in advance for things and getting a lower price. And when you do that, you're increasing your gross margin. So in the calculation that we normally teach in the world of finance, we teach that by lowering your weighted average cost of capital, you are increasing the value of your firm. But I think that we're kind of missing some of the other things in that, like the confidence, the flexibility, the ability to move quickly and buy a competitor when you've got a lot of cash and things are down, the ability to pay in advance, for instance, for goods and services that you're getting from your suppliers. And the end result is that, you know, you have this flexibility and we're not factoring that flexibility into the capital asset pricing model. Therefore, I would say that, you know, somewhere between zero and 10% of capital structure coming from debt is what I would think is interesting. And I'll tell you a a story that I was, was told by our current health minister in Thailand, Kun Anutin, and he basically told me a case, because he had a lot of cash on his balance sheet, and he told me a case where a customer, a supplier of his said, look, I'm in trouble, and I'm wondering, instead of paying me in 90 days, could you pay me in 30 days? And Anutin said, I could pay you right now, you know, And he said, if you could do that, you'd really save me, you know, save my business and save me. And he paid him then, and he said, but of course, I want a discount. And the guy said, I'm happy to give you a discount. And he gave him a discount, maybe 10% or something. Well, that built a relationship for life with that supplier, number one, because that really saved them. And the second thing is that it increased the gross profit margin. And these are things that maybe not in the capital asset pricing model that we should consider. And that's why I would say that maybe 10 to 20% of the total capital of a company could come from debt, but there's nothing wrong with having zero debt too. So last thing I would take away is, you know, you talked about the endowment effect. And I think the best thing that I ever, I remember when I was a young analyst, it was about 1998 maybe, we already had a huge crash in the stock market. The stock market had been falling for a long time. And a very brilliant fund manager came to Bangkok and he asked me to take him around to meet the banks. So we were in between meeting. And I, I can remember that this was at, in front of Central Chitlom. That's what I remember. I can picture myself on the corner of this, of that corner with that guy. We were in between meetings and he looked at me and says, what do you think about bank XYZ? I can't even remember which one. I think it was Bangkok Bank. And I started to talk about you know, well, you know, over the last three months, it's collapsed by X. Over the last six months, it's collapsed by X. Over the last three years, it's collapsed by X, but, you know, compared to its competitor. And he said, I don't give a crap what happened. I mark my portfolio to market every day. All I care about is what is going to happen. And it was a real slap in the face and a wake up call to me to really focus on the future. And that, brings me to my way of getting over the endowment effect. Every time that we consider rebalancing our strategies, whether it's stocks or ETFs, what we do is we imagine that we've sold everything and now we're sitting on a pile of cash. And if I was, a, if I was managing an asset management company, I would do that probably every quarter and get all my fund managers into a room and say, good news, I sold your whole portfolio. <laughs> Wait, what? And then say, now you're sitting on million in cash, where do you want to allocate it? So always ask the question, if I didn't own it today, would I buy it today? All right. So those are some of the lessons I took away from what you've talked about. Anything that you would add to that? I would
0: say that there are really two ways to learn from your mistakes. You can make the mistakes and learn it directly, or you can learn vicariously from other people's mistakes. And that's just a lot less painful. But I think the lessons stick better when it's your own mistake. Yeah. Charlie Munger likes to quote General George Patton, who said, you know, it's an honor to die for your country. Just make sure the other guy gets the honor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I like Otto von Bismarck's, only a fool learns from his own mistakes. (laughs) A wise man learns from the mistakes of others.
0: There you go. And, and, you know, the historian Nell Ferguson has written about this. He said the dead outnumber the living 14 to 1. So there are 100, over 100 billion people who have come before us. And you also do not ignore the accumulated wisdom and experience of all those who came before us. And the way to access that knowledge is to just read a bunch of books.
1: Yeah, it's all right there. <laughs> I estimate I I don't know the exact number but my estimate after now 40 years of reading I would say I've read close to probably 5000 books. Wow. And I have four books on my bed right now that I've been reading. I just finished the latest one Measure What Matters. I'm now reading Annie Duke's book How to Decide and I've got The 48 Laws of Power that I'm working on and I just constantly reading so I think that's a uh, great. So based upon what you learn from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Subscribe to your podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's all there. <laughs> That's
0: right. Many lifetimes worth of wisdom on your, on your podcast, Andrew. And I really mean that. My advice would be to develop your own investment philosophy early on in life. Figure out what kind of an investor you want to be. What's your temperament like? And, you know, Richard Feynman said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself. And remember, you're the easiest person to fool. So try to really figure out what it is that you wanna do. And I think something that's really important is to develop good habits early on in life. Because bad habits are very difficult to break when you're old. You know, they say chains of habits are too weak to be felt before they're too strong to be broken. I think that's really, really important and hang around with people who are better than yourself because over time, you will drift in that direction and you don't even have to physically hang out with them. You can mentally hang out with them in books. You know, Charles Munger talks about making friends among the eminent dead. And I think that's a fantastic way to go as well.
1: (laughs) That reminds me of, I gave a presentation to the American Chamber of Commerce here a, a while ago with Dale for about our coffee business. And. As we started presenting it, I said, I want to introduce you to my eminent board. And I proceeded to put up a picture of, you know, Dr. Deming and Peter Drucker and all of these people. They're thinking, how the hell did you get all these people on your board? And I said, well, this is our advisory board. And we've learned from all the books that these guys have written and all of that. So, yes, fantastic. Now, what is a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners?
0: Sure. So I'm reading this book right now and I'll bring it up i'm not sure if you read this andrew
1: the art of learning no tell us
0: so this book is by josh waitskin so josh waitskin is this remarkable guy who has figured out how to be world-class at various disciplines he was a chess champion then he mastered tai chi then jiu-jitsu and i believe now he's learning how to fall surf and this book is about his learning principles and learning to learn is a meta skill in life. So once you figure out how to learn what you want to learn, then, you know, you can go in any field you want, I think. Mm, Great,
1: great resource. I'm just looking at it right here on Amazon. The art of learning An inner journey of optimal performance. Joss Waitzkin. Excellent. And I, I would add in Annie Duke's book that I've just started reading how to decide. I mean, if you could learn how to learn and how to decide, my gosh. And sometimes it's interesting, and one of my questions for her when she comes on is, are we really better as a society at deciding or are we worse? Are we really learning as a society? You know, I know individually we can point to individuals that are better learning, but if we go back when I was in high school and I had to learn French, and you take a young person nowadays and they, they're in high school and they've got to learn French, are they able to learn French? If they had the same skill level, same interest in it as me at that time, would they be able to learn it in half the time? You know, five times faster? Or is it pretty much the same?
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. And That's- one, one of his mental models is depth over width. And whenever he's trying to learn anything new, he would try to understand it from the first principles and he would try to master the micro positions. In the book, he talks about playing chess with just three positions on three pieces on the board pawn versus king and that's a funny way to play chess but the, you know you you're working from you know you're starting with the end game as opposed to the opening right. and i just found that really interesting
1: yeah well that's a great recommendation last question what is your number one goal for the next 12 months
0: you know i, I don't have a master plan but what you know i'm just inspired by this book. And what I wanna do is I think I wanna pick one industry, you know, say banking, and then spend the next six to 12 months reading everything I can about that particular industry and just try to become, just try to develop a really good understanding of that industry. So I think that that would be my goal for the next six to 12 months. And also my sister's wedding is coming up. And yesterday I had my first dance lesson. So maybe another goal is to get better at dancing.
1: Now that is the best, best recommendation that out there, because if you can learn to dance, the world is your oyster. oyster. I also like the recommendation. I think for the listeners out there, you know, what is an area that you want to be a leader in? You can be top in your industry. If let's just say that you're a salesperson and you say, I really want to be a leading salesperson. There's 12 great sales books out there. There's more, but let's just say you pick the top 12. And once every month, you read one of those for a year. You take your notes, and you create cheat sheets and all that. That's what I do in my, in my business, my book club, is I create cheat sheets on all the books that we read. In fact, I'm looking for one right now. But these cheat sheets, basically, I've got one that I've just done on 48 Laws of Power. And these cheat sheets are a great way to remind yourself what did you learn and make sure that you're putting it into action. You could read 12 books on sales. By the end of the year, you would be top 10% of your industry as far as knowledge is concerned. So I really you know, challenge the audience to pick that area and focus in on it. I don't know if it's going to be the banking area, but you picked me. <laughs> I was a bank analyst for 10 years, so I did a huge amount of detail work on banks. So... There is some interesting stuff there. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet joined the Become a Better Investor community, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your lifetime discount exclusive for podcast listeners. As we conclude, Derek, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Thank you so much for having me on your show, Andrew. It's, it's a real
1: privilege. It's great to have you. And you're an inspiration, I think, for all the young people out there that are building their knowledge base and finding their investment style, which I think was great advice. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our, well, fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help one million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.